we should probably be arguing passionately about things that are more important. <laughs> That's good. But this is, a, this is surprisingly important. Over the weekend... I can't believe it. Over the weekend, last, or two weeks ago... Chris we, and I are arm wrestling right now. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am when I try to fill out those online forms that make me try to prove I'm a human by clicking on pictures of cars, I cannot do it. CAPTCHA? CAPTCHA. Yeah, every time I do it, it it like goes cycles and cycles and I have to do four or five different... I can't figure out, is the, is the, is the car, the top of the car in that square... And that accounts, or every week, is Matt, like you're, a, you're telling us about some daily angst that you're is, having. This is my therapy, Don. Gosh, I'm Matt. saving so much money by doing this podcast. Maybe you, see, you ought to you seek know, professional what would be help. Better? I have a lot of issues. <laughs> I think, and I'm uncomfortable with that. I think better therapy would be if you spent more time on the Population Health Exchange website. Well, it's funny you you uh, especially in me. the winter. You preempted I me. I understand here. that it's really really good in the winter time. First of all, it's not winter time. It's not winter time. It's still fall time. No, no, and what no. happens in fall? What happens in fall? What's the best thing about November? Pumpkins. No. Thanksgiving. Best thing yeah. about fall is Thanksgiving. And in my I don't house, think Halloween is the best thing? That's in October. November. I don't but know if still, you know. That's still fall. I said uh, November. What's the best thing about November? We're in November now. But, no, we're not. The World it, Series. Yes, we are. No, we're not. First of all, Chris, you're embarrassing <laughs> yourself. Stop that. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> October baseball, not November. Oh, right. Best thing about boys of summer. Best thing about best thing about November is Thanksgiving, and in my house, not flag day. At Thanksgiving, we go around the table. We all say what we're thankful for. Yeah. And what I am thankful for this year is many things, including the population. One of which is the population health exchange website. (laughs) I am so thankful because you know why? There's something particularly interesting going on, which is that we are now gearing up for. The uh, Winter Institute. Oh, wait a minute. It's only November. Well, we're gearing up for it. No, it's not. It's October. Stop it. It's November. But that's not winter either. I'm saying we're getting ready for it. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Enough, enough, enough. Okay. We're getting ready for it. And the Winter Institute, which is going to be a product of the Population Health Exchange website program, uh, will be on January 7th. And the amazing thing this year is it's going to be virtual. So there's going to be live stream courses, including uh, courses on GIS, uh, on story mapping, and on biostatistics. So you can uh, go to the Population Health Exchange website where you can learn more about it, and you can sign up for that Winter Institute. I think you're really going to like it. Can we uh, also advertise ZipRecruiter? You always want to. Um, does it? Is I, the I idea hear that, about it every time I turn around. Is the like, idea that if we advertise for them for free, eventually they'll pay us? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Or is the idea that if you have a podcast, you have to mention ZipRecruiter. The latter. Or it's not a podcast. The latter. Got it. Anyway, as a reminder, uh, we would love if you go out and give us a, a rating on your podcast app. Uh, it really helps other people find us. Because um, we're lost all the time. We are lost. <laughs> um, so I checked. Uh, we have 47 ratings so far. So thank you if you are one of the people who gave us a rating. Uh, we don't want to brag. I don't want to brag, but we do have a perfect score at the moment. Perfect. Nothing but ones? Nothing but some things. I'm not going to say what. We're doing really well. I'm just saying if this was our GPA, we'd get into college. Hmm. Um but uh, but that is not a just just we still want more readings. Um, I'm just saying we got a perfect score like I did on all of my high school exams. 
Mom, if you're listening, you can uh, verify that, right? Anyway, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study that looked at the effect uh, or the effect of the relationship between exercise and mental health. And the second part, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of debunking science. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or act like eighth grade boys. And when I wrote that line, my ninth uh, grade daughter told me eighth grade boys actually act more maturely than the three of us do. <laughs> so do with that what you will. Uh, so let's get into it. In segment one, we're going to get into an article that looks at the effect or claims to look at the effect of or the Association of Exercise and Mental Health. Study was published in the journal Lancet Psychiatry with first author Sammy Chekrud of the Oxford Center for Human Brain Activity at the University of Oxford, although there were other affiliations which I didn't list, so I think it's also associated with uh, Yale. Yale. Right, that may be right. Yeah, I'm having, yeah. The study was titled uh, Association Between Physical Exercise and Mental Health in 1.2 Million Individuals in the USA Between 2011 and 2015, a cross-sectional study. We can get into the fact, uh, we can get into the idea of should you include things like uh, facts about your study in the title, like the 1.2 million individuals, or sometimes people will put the finding in the study, uh, of, in, the res, in the title, and uh, some journals won't allow that. Confirmation um, that the earth is flat. We can, uh, right. Kyrie Irving, going back to that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, okay, some headlines on this one. So we, we, this one made a lot of headlines. Uh, this one, uh, MSN says, science says exercising this much will make you a happier person. Science says. So science is talking. Can too much exercise affect your mental health, says Newsweek? I don't totally get that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what they said. Not at all. I'm just telling you. But I think that that's true. Regular, that's probably true, which is why I avoid it. Regular exercise, best, quote, best for mental health, says The Independent. Exercise can help those with depression to a point says the Chicago Tribune, and NBC 12, NBC 12 says exercise really can chase away the blues. What is NBC 12? Well, it's like an NBC affiliate. Um, it wasn't like NBC... For 12-year-olds? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is not. It's not that's not it. It's not. Uh, okay, Don, can, right. you, can you give us a rundown on this study? Yeah. With Studies on, on exercise seem to be really common. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of studies out there. People sure like to run them. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, um, so in any event, um, there is uh, the, the authors state that there have been um, a number of studies on um, exercise as adjunct therapy um, for mental health, but there have been relatively few studies that have been large enough and to, to be able to actually drill down on individual types of exercise and their effect on mental health. And and when we say mental health here, we mean primarily depression, I think. So their goal was to measure mental health burden associated with different types of exercises and um, accounting for sociodemographic and physical health characteristics. So it's a cross-sectional study, and what they used was a CDC-funded um, um, behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, which was done between those years that you mentioned in the, in the title, 2011 and 2015, where they did a phone survey of um, adults over the uh, eight, eight, uh, over 18 years old in all 50 states, and they got responses from 1,439,000 individuals. That's a lot of people. 
and they ask them questions about demographics, about their physical health, about their mental health, and their health-related behaviors. Um, they claimed that there was relatively few missing data, so the individuals um, with missing data were excluded, and they uh, just analyzed the remainder, which apparently was... Um, there was no need to impute for statistical because there, were so, because there were so few missing data, apparently. Although imputation is meant to deal with bias, not, not, necessarily, not just power, and we can get into whether or not we think it actually works, but... Keep going. So, so um, they uh, they did this phone interview and they asked people to self-report on their prior mental health. And the question that they asked was, has a doctor, nurse, or other health professional ever told you that you have a depressive disorder, including depression, major depression, dysthymia, or minor depression? The outcome was likewise asked. And the question was, now thinking about your mental health, which includes stress, depression, and problems with emotions, for how many days during the past 30 days was your mental health not good? Um, and then uh, they describe the exercise activities in an open-ended sort of a way, and they, they, they kind of grouped all of the different kinds of um, exercise that people reported doing, and there were 75 different types, and they sort of grouped them all into uh, eight categories like sports, cycling, aerobic gym, team sports. Um, they also asked the number of times per week, the minutes per session, and the intensity level. Um, and they adjusted for individual level covariates such as age, race, gender, marital, marital status, income, education, and uh, level employment. Um, BMI, which I assume they probably just calculated based on the report by the individual of their height and weight, self-reported physical health and previous diagnosis of depression. So all of these data are self-reported. So there's nothing that was actually measured. Um, and they compared the self-reported mental health that the individual claimed having and the exercise pattern in the past month. So the whole thing was really limited to the prior 30 days um, from, uh, from that phone conversation. Um, and they did separate analysis if people reported having had a history of depression prior to what occurred in, in the last month. And they did also separate analysis for mindfulness exercises, which they defined as um, engaging in Tai Chi and yoga. Um, so they ended up, uh, the, the, the data set ended up having 1.2 million individuals, which was 86% of the sample. And I can't remember why that 14% that was, was omitted, but uh, the mean days of poor mental health in the past month for the entire group was 3.3 days. Um, and That's they, pretty good. Yeah, I suppose. Um, and so what they did is they matched people who had um, engaged in an um, exercise in the prior month with those that hadn't. And in that matched data set, they had 852,000 individuals. Um, and when they made that comparison, they found that there were 1.5 days less depression in the prior month if they engaged in exercise. In the uh, prior month. Mm -hmm. In the prior month. And then um, when looking at individuals who had a prior diagnosis of depression, um, they found that there was a greater effect. There was a 3.75-day reduction in, in, in days being depressed in the prior month. And this was seen across the age span in um, both genders, in all racial groups, all levels of income, and um, they uh, showed a um, decrease... Um, in particular, um, in people who engage in mindful exercise, mm -hmm. they even found that there was a 9.7% decrease in depressed days 
if you engaged in household chores, which is a form of exercise, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Washing the dishes. Um, and then as far as duration and frequency was concerned, they, they found a U-shaped effect. So, mm-hmm. so um, the, the maximum benefit was between 30 and 60 minutes of exercise per session and three to five sessions per week was ideal. And if you exceeded that, then the, the, the relationship tended to... Um, to um, kind of break down, there were more more episodes of depression with um, excessive exercise. Maybe that's you know people that are just a little too fixated on exercise. And overall, their conclusion was 120 to 30, 360 minutes per week um, was the most beneficial um, for individuals. So mm-hmm. no, so little to no exercise supposedly is bad. Too much exercise. Moderate exercise is good, and too much exercise is also bad. Right. Right. Is their take on this? Chris, so, what's your? So I, 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 I'm a, I am a broken record. Yes, you are. I am a broken record. And this, I, this can, I, like can I can I guess then what you're going to say? Selected for my. <laughs> you're going to say benefit. that this entire study is confounded by bees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, behave. <laughs> uh, behind. I was going to say something right. I would behind yourself, Matt. <laughs> That's buzz, a terrible, buzz, terrible buzz, pun. I wonder why he does. Okay. All right. So, um. So I was going to I was going to say, you know, this is a cross-sectional analysis. What we would like to see in terms of trying to generate like proof to support the hypothesis that exercise improves your mental health is that you exercised and then your mental health got better. But that is not what they did. What they did was they decided at one point in time how these two phenomenon varied and then they drew some they did some math and because they had an, a very large sample size and Don I'm going to give you the honors, the p-value was what? <laughs> 10 to the minus 16? It was, it was 2.2 times 10 to the minus 16. That's, so a, that's, that's quite a value. I have never seen that. <laughs> we are creeping up on Avogadro's number of significance here. <laughs> right. So You, know, you wouldn't even be able to find that p-value oh, if it fell on the floor. And, right. and, the, and they had a histogram showing the, the, the different kinds of exercise, and they had a little error bar yeah. at, the, at the top, <laughs> and you which can't you it? can't and see. It. You just the, get to like a w, dot at the top. Of it's the, the W statistic, which I think must stand for wow or something. <laughs> but I don't, I don't wacky. Know. Wacky. Wicked, wicked. Lodge. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, so I'm just going to say that if you were trying to answer this question, you would not ideally go for cross-sectional analysis because it will never answer your question. So I'm just, I'm just going to read you a quote, which I comes like straight quotes. from the post. So this oh, is from their paper. Oh, I thought it was going to be Emily from their paper. This is from the methods section in the statistical analysis plan. It says, and, and reader, uh, listeners, just listen close. With a large sample of participant-level data, this sample afforded a detailed comparison between the various types of exercise in which individuals engage. Hmm, so far, so good. I said that, not them. <laughs> we, we analyzed the effect of exercise type using a hurdle at zero negative binomial regression. Hurdle? We can, Hurdle Hurdle at zero, negative binomial regression. We confirmed the presence of zero inflation with a Vuong test, comparing a (laughs) negative binomial regression with a hurdle at zero, negative binomial regression. To account for the fact that participants self-select various exercise types, we applied a multinomial propensity weighting procedure that used generalized generalized boosted regression trees to estimate post-stratification propensity scores. What? <laughs> I did not understand a word of that. that. Maybe maybe you got that one. Well, I understood about three quarters of it, but what I can tell you is to me that sounds and not because of not because of what it is, but but because of what they're trying to do here is I, I had data that can't really answer the question the way I want it to, right? Bingo. Can, and therefore <laughs> I'm gonna do a lot of fancy statistics to 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 try and get over those. Well, no, 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 no. I'm gonna be to, to be fair to the authors, I think they are trying to deal with the problem. I just don't think 
these things deal with the problem. The basic problem. I, I don't is think it's obfuscation. You I think cannot, it's an attempt. The I basic problem don't think it works. is that you cannot prove cause and effect with a cross-sectional study. No that matter the, no how. Is, no, no matter what the no. flipping nope, I don't know. Nope, 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 nope. Not true. Nope. There are cases true. where you can. Like what? Cases where we know for sure that the exposure came before the outcome, i.e. genetics. Oh. Okay. So there, there, That's there one. Are, my point sure. is I, I don't want you Okay, okay. But in this in this kind of in this Even then it's hard, I should cannot. say. Even we then cannot. it's hard. I'm just saying, so let's I would, not throw out cross-sectional studies as, fair enough. as impossible. I would, I would look at this study design and I would say, it's a cross-sectional analysis of these two variables and we want to know if this causes that. We are not going to be able to answer that question in a cross-sectional analysis. Yes. No matter how flippin' huge the sample size is and how small the p-value is. And the fact that they're quoting a p-value of 10 to the minus 16 emphasizes what you've been saying along is that p-values are ludicrous. Um. I agree. I agree with that 100%. I mean, I think here the the, the problem with that p-value becomes a false sense of precision. Of, of precision. It, it, that, they're that, assuming that p equals tiny p equals therefore causal. That it, they have nothing to do with each other. Well, so exactly. So so the point of p-values is p-values are calculated under the assumption that you've done the perfect ran, randomized trial. Right. When you haven't done that, and people smarter than me point this out all the time. Your, a low p-value tells you that your data are inconsistent with the assumptions of the p-value. One assumption of the p-value is that the null is true. Mm. So it could be that your data are consistent with the fact that the null is not true. It could be that your data are inconsistent with the assumption that you've done the perfect randomized trial and that you have a lot of bias. And so a low p-value in this case just tells us that the study is so large, random error is not the problem. Right. When random error becomes minimal, systematic error is the dominant form of, of error. And therefore, the p-value, we don't need p-values here. You can right. just say, we essentially have no random error. Let's focus on the systematic error. I don't so think, let's get into the systematic error. I don't error. think the issue is systematic error. I think the question no, is, is, like, there are two hypotheses here, right? One is that if you exercise more, your mental will your mental health improve? That's one question. Yep. Or... It, is the reverse possibly true that if people have good mental health, are they more likely to exercise because they're not depressed and sitting on the sofa? Or if that, yeah, I mean, and, and unfortunately, this is reverse causation, right? These data, which the finally I agree with you, yeah, you're actually yeah. talking about reverse <laughs> this causation. Is a, this is a great example. This is a great example of reverse causation, yeah. right? This is an example of where those two explanations cannot be teased out, regardless of the sample size. And I don't think. You know, I don't think you need to really read the statistical analysis to realize that a cross-sectional study can never and answer this question. And then you layer on top of that the 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 the, the lack of um, relative validity of, of of recall data. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's no there's no independent verification of what people are saying on the phone is necessarily the, the, the reality. I mean, you know, people people lie all the time about how much they weigh or how or, tall they are, and people also misremember or right. misremember, right? But then you get into this sort of like you say okay, you start with that that basic assumption that you know or the basic position that we can't actually tell which of those hypotheses are true regardless of the analysis because of the reverse causality. We don't know what's causing what. So then we get into these these curious U-shaped distributions of all these 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 you know associations between different kinds of exercise and mental health. And and I would say that the fact that they're U-shaped really suggests that the population, the reason that people exercise or don't exercise or exercise a lot or exercise a little bit is, is 
probably not at random, and is very likely confounded with the endpoint. That people who exercise for three or four hours a day are fundamentally people from who those who exercise for 30 days, 30 minutes, five times a week. And I would agree with that. I think, you know, all those statistical methods that they're trying to use are attempts to deal with those problems. I just don't think you can. But they can't. But I, I, I don't want to be cynical about those. I mean, they, they were trying very, very hard to deal with this problem. Um, I just don't think they can. So uh, let me let me just back up a second here and say, you know, we talk a lot on this program about priors. Um, you know, what do I think about this hypothesis before I ever see the data? And then the data should inform me as to what I should think after I see the data. My prior on this is probably, yeah, probably exercise does improve mental health. But my prior on that is the effect size is not very large. Mm -hmm. my, my assumption is that it, for some people, it might have some benefits and some people it will have no benefits. And then on average, the, the benefits are probably modest. So I'm going into this, you know, a, a, a skeptic on the idea of big effects, but, but I'm also, but I'm open to the idea that there are effects. So the, the results sort of in some ways fit with what I believe. They are just overestimates of what I believed. Um, and I, I, so my point is I'm not, I'm not, um, because I don't, because I share all your concerns, Chris, doesn't mean I think that the study hypothesis is necessarily wrong. I'm just saying I agree it with doesn't you on that. prove it. I agree that it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle either way to see, my mind. See, see, see to me, it's, it's, it's just so wrapped up in this reverse causality that you, I, I don't think you can even, you can even take away anything because you just don't know really what's, what's reality because, because I think everybody in the world has experienced periods when they're not feeling all that great and, and they don't want to exercise. And they don't want to exercise, yeah. you know, so, so it, it, that to me is the completely clear and self-evident takeaway from this. That I feel it's during just, the academic year mostly. So why, uh, so why did this study get so much press then? Because it tells people what they want to hear, yeah. that exercise I will make so. them feel better. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But it's also, I'm sure that Don is right, that depressed people don't want to exercise. And so that's also in these data. And right. we don't know which of those is the dominant right. force. Like if you have a, a depressed, non-exercising person, you force them to exercise every day, you get a personal trainer, drag them out of bed and force them to, to run, you know, for 30 minutes, five times a week. Are, is their mental health going to improve? Maybe, yep. maybe not. We don't know. But the, this but, paper doesn't but tell this us paper that. does not move our insight one direction or the other, just because the basic study design, regardless of the complicated statistics, cannot answer the question. So why bother? That was my takeaway on this. Mm. Yeah, I, so I, I do want to I do want to emphasize that 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 I don't want to throw out cross sectional studies across the board. There are times when cross sectional studies have been incredibly influential and important, and I, I do want to emphasize that um, they do come at a at a they start off disadvantaged in many cases, uh, and this is one where I really do think they do. You guys hit all of my um, <laughs> key points except for one, which is a is a bit of a riff on what. Don already brought up, which is Don, you said, you know, you ask people about their mental health uh, and you ask people about their exercise habits and people misreport, they misremember, you know, the, you get it wrong for whatever reason. And I, I, we won't get into what those reasons are, but we talked about it once before in this program, but that, that, that misclassification tends to lead to errors that are at least um, predictable in a, in, a, in a particular direction if they are non-differential, if they're independent of each other, um, you know, whether or not you have poor mental health doesn't, doesn't uh, make you more likely to misreport your exercising and vice versa. Uh, that tends to bias towards the null. If they do depend on that, the, the bias might go in other directions. It's very hard to say. 
But where you can get big problems is something that we, we talked about it once before is when you get what are called dependent errors or, or correlated errors, which is when the error in one variable, key variable, is correlated with the error in another key variable. So the idea being, um, if, if I ask you, if you have, they specifically said, have you had you know, diagnosed, have you been told you have a mental health, what was the question? Do you remember? Have you been told you have depression? Yeah, mental, or anxiety, anxiety or uh, I can't yeah. remember exactly There's how it was stated. And then you ask about how much did you exercise, and if I there are certain people who are you no, know, it's a depressive disorder including depression, major depression, dysthymia, or minor depression. Have you been told you have one of those? Yeah, right, right. And you have certain people who who will say, well, you know, they sort of think, well, you know, I've never been told that by a health professional, but I, I, I have feel those. depressed. I have those, <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to say yes. Yeah. And then you say, do you exercise? You know, have you been exercising? You say, uh, you know, I did some exercise, but you know what? Mostly I've just been sitting around. So I'm going to discount the exercising that I actually did. And I'm going to say, no, I did, all, I did none. And, and now you have a correlation there. And you get people who go in the opposite direction. You get people who say, well, you know, yes, I've, I've, you know, I've been diagnosed with one of those conditions, but I don't identify with that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got it under control. So no, I'm going to say no. Mm-hmm. Did you exercise? And then you say, oh, I was out there every day. And, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and so you get these, these correlations. And it doesn't take that many of those people to create large amounts of bias in your data mm-hmm. when you get these double misclassifications. And the the double misclassifications are always going to happen to an extent. That's we expect that if both variables are misclassified, it's when it's greater than the expectation that we have real problems. And the way you prevent that is you don't ask, you know, you don't get the same uh, your exposure and your outcome information from the same source. Mm. So you ask about exercise, and then you go to the medical record for a diagnosis. Right. When you ask the same person, their biases right. filter into the misclassification. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it makes it very hard to, to say that we can, we can be really confident in the data, even if there was no problem with reverse causation, even if there was no problem with the confounding, the misclassification alone is going gonna, is gonna to leave me quite skeptical. Yeah. So, that, so, so that, that would improve upon the, the already problems yeah. associated with a cross-section um, with a with a cross-sectional it would, study it creates even more problems it, yeah so so this approach creates even more pro- problems the, the way you're suggesting is a way to sort of take a step away from that and and you per- could, perhaps you could improve, have improved improving the reliability of the, of the data you could have improved the study by going to medical records right you yeah. could also improved it in the sense that you could probably have identified that you were talking about exercise now with the people on the phone but the diagnosis was in the past right which it's, would have been a help it, it, it would be perfect it would be a help it's a really interesting contrast from the the study that we talked about last for the last podcast where all the data came from different sources but it was all sort of verifiable data and none of it was was um self-reported and, and, and you had the time order as well yeah right right, right. and so this is, that, that that just just for the for uh, um listener reference that was a diclofenac study that's that the we one did. we did back in october that's what we did in october right <laughs> right right we should do this and in, it's still october for some it's reason not, it's november <laughs> It's November. It's the oh eyes of November. Um, it, so this is, is this a, sort of a, a, a variant of Rickelmeyer's then? Is, is that well, I, fall I in that rubric? Um, recall bias tends to be dif- differential error. It's when people who actually have um, been diagnosed with one of these conditions are more likely to misreport. So you got the one variable you know, might be correct. Like, like the, but it predicts, like the, you know, women who've unfortunately had a, had a, had a miscarriage and then yep. are asked, did you drink coffee while you're pregnant? And, and they're 
you know, traumatized by the event and looking to find a reason. So they and re- so they recall. over-recall, you know, the exposure yeah. of interest. Whereas here, what we're concerned about is both variables being misclassified. Right. And the reasons why they are both misclassified is correlated. It's, right. And that, that moves people from those you know, unexposed, undiseased to the exposed, diseased. Yeah, interesting. Of interesting. your two by two table or vice versa. And it that that really messes with your results. So you're saying misclassification tend to party together? Uh, when you ask by self-report, <laughs> yes. I like that. Yeah, I think oh. it's good. So this is a great teaching well example. Um, I think it's when you should go in front of our students. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. Uh, and in our second segment, we want to talk about the pros and cons of debunking science. Mm. So we on this program spend a lot of time talking about science. And, not debunking, and critiquing. Critiquing. Well, in particular, we specifically try to critique. And we, we try very hard to call things as we see it. And in particular, when we see uh, good science, we like to call that out. And we also, um, at least I, I we should be emphasizing, and I hope we do, that all uh, research is on a continuum, that every study has some source of, of, of bias and error in it. And it's a question of how, how far and how much we think that study is going to move the needle for, you know, on our prior based on how good we think that study is. And that is why we spent an entire episode critiquing one of our own studies to make the point that we, you know, we're not sitting up on and judging everything, you know, our studies can be critiqued as well. Everything has these problems and you have to be able to draw the line and be able to interpret a study in light of its errors, but also move forward as a field. And the concern that came up that prompted this particular topic was a conversation that the three of us were having around the idea that if you spend a lot of time critiquing science, do you give material and uh, ammunition to those who are out to get science, do you give them material to say science is simply useless and bad when in fact that is not at all our aim? Our aim is to simply point out the cases where the science could have been better and think about ways we can do it better uh, and not to just to, to say that, that you know, our particular field of science is, is bogus. That is not what I think the three of us believe. And I think it's a concern. You know, how much time do we spend on critiquing when that critique can be used against us by people with ulterior motives. Don, what are yeah, your, you know, what it, are your thoughts? It, 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 was a, it was an interesting and spirited discussion we had yesterday about this very topic. And I, I was thinking about whether we would be having these thoughts, having these concerns if it were five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that I would be less, personally less concerned um, about this particular topic if it was five or, five or 10 years ago, because the climate has changed. And, and, and I really, really... Literally and figuratively. I, I, yeah, right. And I really, really worry whether uh, the listeners or, or anybody who's, who's involved in, in this is going to take away the wrong message from what we're saying. Because are we feeding, providing fuel for this fire that is anti-science, that, that, that are we undermining in some way the whole enterprise of the generation of truth and generation of scientific findings, particularly now um, when there are forces in this country that are really actively trying to delegitimize the scientific enterprise. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that the three of us absolutely so clearly believe in 
almost religiously that, that there is a truth and that we can find a truth. And if we do it systematically through experimentation or, or rigor, we can, we can get there. Maybe not, not immediately, but we can eventually get there. And, and, and to, 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 to be, to be um, doing this podcast in the, in the service of that but possibly undermining that gives me great disquiet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so yeah, in, the, in the course of our, dis- our, our, our d- discussions, um, I think one, I, I sort of thought it would be worthwhile for us to reach out to the listeners and say, do you think that that's the, maybe that certainly that's not our intent and hopefully that's not coming across as our intent, but do you think that that could possibly be one of the um, um, unintended consequences of what we're trying to do, that, that it could be feeding into this, this, this um, climate of questioning science and science being not as rigorous or as, as importantly uh, trying to achieve the truth as, as, as we think it is. Yeah. Well, I, I, we've all shared this anxiety and I don't think that's what we're doing. And I think... No, I, I, I know it's, it's not what not we're doing. our intention. The question is, how is it being received by the listeners? That's what I'd like to know. And, I, and, and this is an invitation to the listeners yeah. to give us feedback about that. This, it, it, last year, um, you and I published uh, this paper about um, pertussis vaccines and why we thought that you know, right. pertussis was coming back right. in the era of the switch to acellular pertussis vaccines. And if you could synthesize that paper in one sentence, it's like, we, you know, we have two vaccines, one is better than the other, and we're trying to figure out why. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that was the point of the paper. Now, right. um, on Facebook, this paper was taken up by the anti-vaccine movement as justification from the scientists that vaccines don't work. Perfect example. We did not say that. <laughs> right. We said one of these vaccines is better than the other. We wanted to find out right. why. Not that vaccines are bad. That right. was not the message. And so it is, I think it is a fallacy in some ways to, to, to think that we can inoculate ourselves against people who are at baseline predisposed to disbelieve science and looking for opportunities to do that by finding errors within science as therefore justification that science is, is misleading us. So I think there's, there's no escaping this because it is, it is in some ways become almost a dogmatic or philosophical movement or, or a matter of faith rather than a matter of, of um, rational discourse. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think we can escape that. So w- if that's true, we don't need to worry so much that we're feeding that frenzy because there's nothing we can do to stop it. Instead, we should focus on our core mission, which is, I think, you know, to take the, the people who are receptive, who are engaged in the scientific uh, you know, mission and say, listen, folks, you know, we believe in science and yet science is incredibly complicated, it is messy, it is frequently wrong. Maybe 80% of the time what you read is wrong. Maybe that's true. I mean, I, I don't know if that is accurate, but John Ioannidis says that it's probably about 80% is, is, is wrong. So, but that doesn't mean that we are not on average over time moving in the right direction of truth. Mm. And what we need to do, therefore, is to make people less religious about believing in science as a reflex. Like our students who see it published in The Lancet and therefore think it is true. I think our mission is to show that because it is in the Lancet, it may be false or it may be irrelevant or it may be flawed. It may be partially correct, but but not quite. And, in, and here are the limitations of why it's not quite so correct. I mean, I think, you know, what we are trying to do is to, is to promote a healthy usership of science, a, a mm-hmm. skeptical interpretation of the literature so that people are less likely to just believe it as a matter of, of faith and 
you know, and perhaps through that we will get a, a, a more informed consumer and, and of, of science and better decisions made on the basis of scientific findings than what we're seeing right now, which is often poor, frankly. I, I hope that's right. I really do. I think part of the problem that we suffer or we're dealing with here is that we in the scientific community play by a set of rules. Not everyone plays by them and not all the rules are good rules. I mean, p-values and statistical significance aren't part of the rules that we play by in that many journals won't accept a paper that doesn't have a statistical significant finding and, and we don't think that's a good thing, but that is at least part of the rules right now. And we can play by it or not play by it, but we're all within the, you know, the, the, the rough, um, you know, confines of the, the, the boundaries of what we consider to be appropriate in science. And part of our science is, is being critical of the, of the literature. And that is what the peer review system is largely about. We are trying to critique in order to make things better. That is that, and that works, I think, pretty well. Uh, it certainly doesn't work as well as it should. I think we would all agree that the peer review system doesn't work as well as it should, and certainly the the publication system doesn't work as well as it should, and that it publishes a lot of things that it probably shouldn't. But once you move outside of the rules of science that we are playing by, those those rules don't apply, and so those who are looking to discredit science can point to any single flaw they want as as completely discrediting the entire paper, the entire science, the entire field, whatever it is, because they're not playing by those same rules that I think we're playing by, which is to say that just because I identify a flaw in a paper doesn't mean I throw it out. I have to try and see if there are ways that I can count for it, hopefully in a quantitative way. But sometimes my only options are at least to think about it and, and carefully try to assess it and be cautious about my interpretation and build a body of evidence before I draw conclusions. Those outside aren't playing mm -hmm. by those rules. Mm -hmm. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by talking only to ourselves. Now, I am the first to admit I'm terrible at talking to non-scientists about science or talking to people outside of my particular field. But I think we do ourselves a disservice because we're talking about the flaws. And that exposes us to anyone coming in from the outside mm -hmm. and saying, scientists themselves are saying it. This is, yeah. this, you shouldn't believe this. It's not so. And it's very easy to take one, you know, the, the criticisms that we put towards studies and therefore completely dismiss everything. It, 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 cynically, it's not so dissimilar from what we're seeing with the delegitimization of um, news. Absolutely. Of journalism, uh, you know, uh, this is a whole phenomenon of fake news and fake science. They really are, are, are movements that are moving in tandem um, as an attempt to delegitimize, you know, the purveyors of inconvenient truths. You know, yeah. the fact that the, the New England, you know, that the, the New England Journal of Medicine published a, an article that was retracted does not mean that all the science in the New England Journal of Medicine is wrong. Just as when the New York Times goes on record mm -hmm. with a source who later retracts their claim and, you know, there goes the foundation of the story doesn't mean that everything that the New York Times writes is false. Mm -hmm. And yet that mm -hmm. argument is made constantly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I, I would hope that the takeaway... Um, from from uh, some of the things that we talk about, some of the things that we do, is that um, a, a part of the understanding and a part of the equation of accepting 
what's put out there as fact or a scientific conclusion is is contributed greatly by the preponderance of evidence, which means the replic- replicability of, of, the, of the information so that it's not any one individual study, right or wrong, that really determines what the final relationship is. It's really a, a body of evidence. And I, and I think part of the problem is that the people who claim... Um, who go against the grain and claim certain individuals' um, scientific conclusions as being um, uh, representative of junk science maybe are, are cherry-picking mm-hmm. some of this data. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what I believe is that we need, to, we need to look at the preponderance of evidence. We need to look at research that, that looks at a particular phenomenon from many different directions, all achieving consensus about a particular relationship. And as we said before, that's, that is particularly challenging with respect to the non-physical sciences, the biological sciences and the health sciences. I, you know, it's, I think it's a lot easier with physics and the physical sciences, which is why I personally am so distressed by people calling out climate change science as being fake science or junk science, and they don't believe it. And there are one or two outliers where all of the, all of the conclusions are pinned on the outliers that, that don't go with the overwhelming consensus. We, I, see, uh, I agree with you 100%, but we can, be as, we can be as upset by that as we want, and we can be as frustrated and, and, and you know, pound our fists on the table. But if we can't communicate to the average person, uh, by average person I mean people with, without the training that we have in our particular field, um, how to how to why what they are you know what these anti-climate people or in our mm-hmm. case you know anti-vax or whatever mm-hmm. it is uh, arguments are making aren't therefore reasons to throw out the field um, we're going to lose. Well, I hope that that's what we're doing. I hope that that's, Anna, that's hope why too. I'm here. In yeah. part, yeah. I hope that yeah. that's that that is the the the, the net result. And again, uh, you know, I'm inviting our listeners to give us feedback with respect to: Are we succeeding or are we not succeeding? And I think that's the key. I think we 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 need as much feedback as we can on on you know, do we put enough emphasis on on uh, thinking about things in, in the context of the, of the larger picture of the research as opposed to just the fact that we can put flaws. I mean, we usually try to sum up every episode with where we come down on things, which takes into account the totality and not just the fact that we could find flaws. So I go back to the episode we did a couple weeks back on um, Diclofenac. Is that I pronounced that correctly? It was in October, right? It was back in October when, uh, you know, we found flaws with that study, but overall we thought it was a really strong contribution to the field. You know, other studies we've looked at, um, we think, you know... Not so much. Not so much. And, you know, did we want to think about in those cases, how do we do it better? How could we, you know, how could you do this same study but really get to the answer that we want. And I think so our hope is to try and improve things. Yeah. If we miss that mark, we want to hear about it. Yeah. Well, it's why, we, it's why we're public health uh, educators and professors, is that we're, we're, we're not merely doing science because we love science, but we're here because we, we also have the opportunity to teach. Yeah. And by doing that, we are creating a larger number of individuals who can be skeptical, inquired, informed you know, consumers of, of science. Okay. So let us, let us know what you think. We'd love to, love to hear from you. Let's, uh, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and abusing segment. This is where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. Our look at the weird and wacky things that happen as well as those things that just inspire us. Don, you want to, you want to go first? Sure. Let me ask a question first to you two guys. Okay. 
Um, do you put one or two spaces after the period in a sentence when you're writing? Two spaces, and this is a really important issue. And one, I'll tell you one, hold on, hold on. It's one, okay. and I will fight Chris to the there death on this. There we go. Perfect setup. It's there, one. I did not know this. There is a raging controversy. Two, two and you're hearing is about it right now. It's, right. it's, oh, All right. So the, apparently the American. I'm Amer- not going to get past this. Hold on. Hold we'll on. I have nightmares. Hold today. on. Apparently the American. Um, Psychological Association just changed their style manual to go from one to two spaces. That prompted a... uh, Next, we're all going to use the Oxford comma. (laughs) That prompted three researchers from from Skidmore, Rebecca Johnson, Becky Bui, and Lindsay Schmidt, to do a series of experiments to determine if we can empirically measure whether there is, in fact, a benefit in terms of reading speed and reading comprehension, with two spaces versus one space. Oh, there's no question. <laughs> there's no question. One is better. So they go through this long descri- description of I why... I want to see the replicability why, on this. <laughs> ...of why two spaces might affect your parafoveal information, so which, is, which is really the space just to the side of where you're looking. Okay. Mm-hmm. And whether two... You need two spaces after the period <laughs> so that you have less confused line of sight. More okay. blank, blank space. More, More blank, blank space. space. Okay, this is, I have to admit, this is an argument for the two spaces I've never heard before, and I'm intrigued. Go. So, so they did a series of experiments um, where they, 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 they collected a bunch of student, um, students, 60 students at Skidmore College who were native speakers of American English, and they, they, they determined whether they were two spacers or one spacers first to see, uh-huh. to see what the input was. And then they had them read a series of paragraphs um, on, on, a, on a computer screen and, and those paragraphs would be either one spaced or two spaced, and they did it also with the comma, one space after the comma in, internal to the sentence, or oh, two spaces boy. as like an internal control. You mean as an internal control, wow. and they also had this very fancy device that uh, that measured within a my uh, I think a a, a, um, uh, a very small distance where their eyesight was looking, and they tracked as people were reading whether they dwelled at the end of the sentence excessively long based on whether it was two or, cool. or <laughs> one spaces. I'm and intrigued. So, and so what the take-home messages were that um, there's a graph where they look at reading speed and um, there's a clear advantage to being a two-spacer. No. As opposed to being a one-spacer. Two-spacers read considerably faster than one-spacer. Now, these are, really? the, these are the individuals in terms overall of their reading speed, not in terms of whether they were reading two-space or one-space paragraphs. When it got down to it, they ended up concluding that Two-space paragraphs, regardless of whether you are a one-spacer or a two-spacer, afforded a 3% increase in um, reading speed with no penalty on reading comprehension. Wow. (laughs) So uh, I I just really enjoyed the very last sentence of the discussion um, where they said, thus, while period spacing does influence our processing of text, we should probably be arguing passionately about things that are more important. <laughs> That's good. 
But this is a, this is surprisingly important. Over the weekend, I can't it. over the weekend, last or two weeks ago, Chris we, and I are arm wrestling right we, now. We had a we had a guest over. Uh, and we, my, one of my daughters is applying to college, and the guest was very cognizant with the um, evaluation process for student essays at colleges. And and this this individual said, you know, one of the things they look for as they're reading those essays is whether they're two spaces or one space. Seriously? No. Um, yes. No. But the reason why is that the two space is a generational thing because we all learned that in typing. Right. It, right? That's where it comes from. That's it's, right. It's, it's an space, anachronism. Tap, tap, space, tap, tap. You know, or... Uh, I never did. It's an anachronism. It's an from, from so they use this as a, as a poor man's way of telling whether the parents wrote the essay. <gasps> oh, interesting. But I, like, I don't, oh, but I don't wow. think, I, hopefully they're, they're, they're not coming up with conclusions so based on that. Yeah. Interesting. It's sort of a, a further variation on the, of the theme of like, you know, looking for plagiarism by Googling, yeah. Googling text. So this is like, you know, the, the two space, especially when you see transitions within a paragraph where there's sections that are two space and sections that are one space. And you can tell which was written by mom and which was written by the applicant. <gasps> and that's how they view it. I was like, wow. That's and they really make a based on that? Well, it's one of the things that they go into it. It's like, you know, oh, that was a really great essay. But <laughs> it's a two spacer. <laughs> it's a two spacer. <laughs> I... I, I don't like the two spaces, but yeah, I, I'm intrigued. Well, three percent. Yeah, yeah. They don't talk about all the things you lose as a as a double spacer. Space, right. for example. <laughs> all the time that you're spending hitting that space bar an that extra second time, time. Right. You calculate that over a lifetime yeah, and think yeah. about how many years of your life you you're losing. You'll never get you that into Florida. Time back you again. couldn't because you're a double spacer. <laughs> I'm going on vacation. Chris is not. That's right. There it is. Chris, what do you got for well, us? Well, the the vocabulary word today uh, is not um, Windsorization. <laughs> yeah, I like that <laughs> one. I, I picked that one up too. Frugivore. <laughs> which means eating fruit. Frugivore? So this is a study that I found that I really liked <laughs> about fruit scent. And uh, fruit scent is an evolved signal to primate speed, seed dispersal uh, published in Science. Okay, uh, you're going to have to go into some more detail because I so, didn't get that. I was watching this video today about um, how to choose a good cantaloupe in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they say you should do is what, you should what, sniff the how stem. How is today different from any other day? That's what you do every day. <laughs> Look at videos. Of fruit. <laughs> well, I see you in your office. I used to do cats. Yeah, yeah. But now it's okay. I've moved on to cantaloupes. So you, you sniff the stem, did you say? <laughs> Moving or? through the seas. You sniff, the, you sniff the, the cut place where the stem was. And if you can smell the sort of the ethene smell, the fruit, the juicy, juicy fruit gum, smell yeah it's a good ripe cantaloupe okay so that's one way now the issue here is like whether plants um you know that make fruits that make fleshy fruits yep. that that are going to be the main food source for animals mm -hmm. co-evolve with the um sensory apparatus of the animals that are eating the fruit oh so in other words as the the, the, the animal that's seeking out this fruit changes. It's got to evolve so that it can to be, be found. Eaten, right, because the fruit's goal and it's gotta be eaten. is to be eaten so that those seeds will be in the stool of the, the animal and the animal will go off and see the, the seeds got somewhere it. else. That's cool. Like a classic example of this is our, our, our pimentos, right? Birds scatter pimentos. Birds don't have teeth. And so when they eat a chili pepper, they don't grind up the seeds and destroy them. And so the chili is designed to discourage mammals from eating pimentos. Really? Hot peppers. Because we, we have we sensors that can detect it. capsaicin. Birds do not. And so it is a, a, a strategy to discourage rodents from eating the peppers and encourage birds to eat the peppers. 
Ooh. which is very cool. But this one, this study is about lemurs and fruits and birds and fruits. And so there are different kinds of fruits that, um, that can ripen in different ways. And some will ripen by turning a bright red color, like an apple. Like when you go to the store, you choose the apples that are the reddest often. Yes. Because they look delicious. They do. But, Especially red delicious. Um, and you can also choose fruit based on, on their smell. Um, they smell great, and so you want to eat them. And so a, a, a fruit plant that is being eaten by something with a great sense of smell is going to want to optimize its fruity smell, and it's going to time that fruity smell to when the fruit is ripest so that it can optimize the seed's oh. success rates. Whereas if you're being eaten by something that doesn't have a good sense of smell, then it doesn't matter, and you should go with a visual cue instead. And so it turns out that in Madagascar, where there are relatively few birds and relatively few bats, which are the other things that eat fruits, but lots of lemurs, which eat fruits, you can do sort of do this sort of experiment because the lemurs are mostly nocturnal and sometimes what are called Cephemeral, crepuscular, cathemeral, 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 which means that they they're up, they're like insomniac, and they're either up or all day or up all night, and they're just kind of all around. But a lot of the time, they're up feeding at night. Lemurs have excellent senses of smell based on a huge olfactory bulb, but they are colorblind, and they often feed at night. And so sight is irrelevant to their feeding behavior, or less important. And so you would hypothesize that the fruits that those lemurs like to eat would be the ones that have the strongest smell, and that the ratio of ripe to unripe fruit would be a, a higher gradient. That because the fruit wants to be eaten when it's ready to be eaten, when the seeds are ready, yeah. which is when it ripens. Yep. And so and it turns out that it is absolutely true that not only are the fruits that eat, lemurs like to eat you know, most delicious smelling at the time that is optimal for seed dispersion, but they actually change the volatile organic compounds in the smell to, to, so that it's not just a matter of volume of the VOCs, but it is a different kind of smell that is even more delicious. So it is a, a trigger to say to the lemur, now is the time to eat meat. And they could sort of validate this by following troops of lemurs around in the in the in the in the in the jungles of Madagascar with binoculars and watching them, you know, with guava fruits or whatever they eat. And they would then count the number of times that they would pick up a guava fruit and smell it before they bit it. Mm. <laughs> Taste to see if it smells good, and they found that, like you know, there was a clear gradient, and the the, the smellier they they would go for that. And, and then the control okay. for this was the birds, who have very poor sense very of hard smell. Very for a bird to pick up something, um, but smell. they have excellent color vision. And, and oh. lemurs are colorblind, mm. and birds have great color vision. And so you'd think that birds are going to be looking for the reddest apples, metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. And that mm -hmm. is also or true. Not and metaphorically. That, <laughs> but whatever they, the fruits are. But they, 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 they're looking for them because they look delicious rather than they smell delicious at night. And that's what happens? And that's what happens. And so that the, cool. the gradient and the increase of the smell from a ripe to an unripe fruit is minimal with those kinds of fruits, even within the same species of flowering fruit. You know, families. It seems like, and this would make sense, right? Because if you are the one that looks the most attractive at the right time, you're the one who's going to get get uh, eaten, eaten by the bird, and the seed is going to get dispersed, and that one will go on. Whereas the one that doesn't have the signal is going to die. So they're using different signals for different so cool. for different consumers of those seeds. I thought it was that just wonderful. So cool. uh, I don't know what it has to do with the public health, but I really liked this paper. <laughs> most of what we this has nothing. What I'm about to tell you has nothing to do with public health. I got a short one. Um, so. Everybody knows that academics are some of the funniest people in the world, that right? That is so true. Really funny. We, we're hysterical. So have you seen the, the hashtag that's been going around? That's the hashtag academic movie titles? No. So this is academics uh, coming up with movie titles that would explain the life of an academic. 
and this has been circulating on Twitter. So I'm going to give you some of my favorite ones here. Um, Rebel without a grant. <laughs> Crouching data, hidden p-value. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Silence of the editor. Uh, uh. Uh, Rebel without a causal model. <laughs> a clear and present deadline. Oh, no. Dr. Strange thesis. <laughs> There will be typos. <laughs> That's a good one. Reviewer two in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad article submission. <laughs> I know what you did last sabbatical. And then, because I couldn't resist, I had to get in on this. The one I put in was Raiders of the Lost Journal submission password. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, anyway, have fun with that one. That's very good. So that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at @pomphealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or Chris at, at id.gill or Don at, at dthea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. And don't forget to go sign up for the Winster Institute. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download that next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>